Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, November 8th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's financial show, we're digging into the latest earnings reports for Square, Simon Property Group, Tanger Factory Outlet Centers. We'll even give Berkshire Hathaway a quick flyby. And we've got some Zillow news to get to as well. Uh, hey, as always, joining me this week, it's my guy. He wasn't here last week, folks. He's back this week. It's Mr. Matt Frankel, Certified Financial Planner. And Matt, you're on location this week. Tell everybody where you are. I am in Las Vegas, and normally I would try to find a sub, but I was out last week, and I can't leave Jason for two weeks in a row. <laughs> um, I'm in Las Vegas. There's a couple of real estate-focused uh, conventions going on here this week. I get to talk to the CEO of EXP Realty, one of the co- most more interesting companies in the real estate space, so I'm really excited for that today. Um, and I'm on location here in my, my Las Vegas hotel room, so glad my internet is holding out. How are you doing, Jason? <laughs> Ah, I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Keeping busy here with uh, with work, family, everything. It was a nice weekend here in Northern Virginia. So, uh, you know, just getting back to the grind here on a Monday as, as everyone else is. Uh, Matt, last week, Square reported their most recent quarterly results. And, I mean, this is a company clearly we cover very frequently on the show here. It's a company uh, where a lot of our listeners own shares. You and I, I think, both own shares still in the company. Uh, it, it seemed like it was a good enough quarter. Now, you look at the stock. I mean, the stock was down almost 7% for the week. Now, obviously, we don't invest on on those types of uh, short time horizons. But it, it's worth noting at least the sentiment for, for what seemed like a relatively decent quarter. The market wasn't, uh, the market wasn't really buying the stock hand over fist. Uh, let's 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 go through some of your takeaways here for the quarter because because all in all it does seem like the business continues to to perform well but but I don't know maybe maybe there were some signs of some slowing growth that that have uh, some investors concerned what do you think well speaking of the slowing growth the big headline is that Bitcoin revenue slowed down considerably from the second quarter and I've said before that you know Square's kind of fascination with Bitcoin is probably my least favorite part of the company as an investor and not just not like an anti Bitcoin thing. It's going to be very volatile. It's not going to be predictable revenue. It's kind of like how we were talking with trading revenue with investment banks. It's just really tough to predict from one quarter to the next. So Bitcoin revenue is down significantly. They don't make a ton of money off that, but you know when you're doing billions of dollars in Bitcoin volume in a quarter, it's a significant profit center. Um, but elsewhere in the business, it's it's still looking pretty strong. Um, Square's gross profit was up 39% year over year. One of the few, one of the rare quarters where um, seller, the seller ecosystem actually outpaced the cash app um, because it was compared to the third quarter of last year when things were still pretty shut down. Um, cash app revenue is looking great. They rolled out a few new products. Um, Square Capital, the business lending platform, remember they got their banking charter recently. Uh, Square, Pro- they said that's approaching pre pandemic levels, which during the pandemic, everybody was borrowing through PPP loans and things like that. So um, they didn't have a reason to use Square Capital as much, and now we're seeing that kind of tr- uh, trickle back. They launched a few different, um, a few different in- uh, initiatives that I'm I'm excited to see where they go. They expanded to France during the quarter. That's kind of interesting. Maybe. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, they said the second biggest card payment market in Europe. Um, so 
pretty promising. Uh, they opened up Cash App to 13 to 17-year-olds with parent permission. Um, I which saw I- that. I wanted to get your take on that because as, as uh, you, and I, you and I both are parents and your kids are a lot younger than mine. But uh, yeah, Yours I, are in I, that age group, aren't they? They are. And I, I feel like I, I wish that Square had done this two years ago, right? I mean, that was one of the bigger challenges when we were getting our girls into – uh, sort of a banking relationship, and there weren't really very many compelling options because Venmo and Cash App essentially you know have to be of age to do it. Um, and consequently, what we did is we initially got them started through Greenlight, which is that that sort of teen banking consortium. I think J.P. Morgan owns owns a good chunk of that. Um, and, and ultimately, they have now transitioned into Capital One. has a great checking account for students. You can sign up for it online. Great mobile app. You get your card, and, and you know, no issues there. So now. You know they're working with uh, Capital One, and their direct deposits go there. I, I, I kind of have a hard time seeing them. You know how those banking relationships are, Matt. They're sticky. Once you get in there, you you start you start moving forward with that. Sure, and I think I think this could be a brilliant move in like ten years. And here's why: you know, the teenagers of today don't want Wells Fargo. They don't want Bank of America. They want Venmo and Cash App because it's cool. Um, if you have to be eighteen to to sign up for Venmo and only thirteen with a parent permission to sign up for Cash App. You're landing these customers, say, eight to ten years before they get into their peak earning years or until their real earning years. So you're building this relationship with these customers. And like you said, banking relationships can be very sticky. Uh, people don't change banks often. So this could like bring in a whole new – give them an edge with that demographic um, as they get into their earning years in the coming years. So I, I really am a big fan of that move. I, I, I have a list of stuff Square did this quarter, and that's among my favorites. Um, one of the le- less favorites is the, the afterpay acquisition that's coming up. Yeah, but I mean, if I feel you know we've talked about that before, and I agree with you. I think I think Cash App opening itself up to that thirteen-year-old and, and, and above demo, I think it's a great move. I just wish they I wish they did it sooner. Um, I'd imagine we'll see Venmo uh, doing something like that in short order as well. Uh, but but yeah, in regard to the afterpay, it, it feels like that acquisition. You and I probably I think are coming at it from basically the same direction there. It's, it's not Afterpay, but it's the price that Square paid for it. Yeah, no, I have no problem with them acquiring Afterpay. I have a problem with them paying $29 billion in stock to do it. Um, especially, I think Square's stock price is a little bit down since the announcement, so they're like diluting shareholders. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that price to pay. I think PayPal did it better um, in that case. And they're doing kind of bolt-on acquisitions to build out their buy-now-pay-later. Not just buying one that's already up and running, because I I honestly don't think Square needs it. Um, I I I don't think they need it twenty nine billion dollars worth. Probably not. I mean that's roughly one fifth of their market cap, and I mean, is 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 it worth twenty percent of what Square's already built to add a buy now pay later service? Yeah, I think that's... I I have a tough time making that argument. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. But overall, the numbers look good this quarter. I'm still encouraged. I'm still a Square shareholder. I don't plan on selling any shares. Uh, they're still growing their payment volume. Their core business, which a lot of people think of as boring, um, actually grew 33% year over, or 37% year over year. Excuse me. Um, they, they're processing on an annualized basis about $160 billion of payments. And it seems like just a few months ago that we that they cracked that $100 billion barrier for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because even even at what you said, 125 billion dollars or something like that, 
uh, I mean, obviously sounds like a lot. <clears throat> then you look at something like a PayPal, and you know, I was just looking through that that call from last quarter with PayPal uh, because you know, PayPal earnings, incidentally, they drop tonight after the market closes. Uh, but but PayPal now they're gonna they're gonna push through one point two five trillion dollars through their networks this year. Yeah, so that just gives times. you an idea, I think, of where Square could go with it. Yeah, roughly ten times the size of Square in terms of payment volume. So I mean, there's still a lot of room to grow. This is not a mature company by any means. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I, I agree with you. I think that's a good take there. And and yep, I remain a a happy shareholder. This the pullback in the stock here is is uh it, it, it it's not just Square. I mean, we've seen PayPal uh, pulling back recently as well. It could open up some some interesting opportunities there for for patient investors. But uh, we shall see. Matt, you're a big real estate guy. Everybody knows it. I know it. Our listeners know it. Hey, you even know it, man. Uh, Simon Property Group and Tanger Factory Outlet Centers uh, both reported earnings last week. And I tell you, we're talking about how the the Square kind of got a lukewarm reception from the market. Uh, These two, I tell you, the market was was picking up what they were putting down. Tanger shares up 27% last week. Simon up 16% for the week. Let's start with Tanger as we reopen. I think these are two companies that you really like. Talk a little bit about Tanger uh, and Simon uh, together, however you want to break it down. But but what stood out to you in these quarters? Why is the market so enthusiastic? You remember the retail isn't dead basket we did about a year ago? Um, and these were two companies that were in it. And I, I loaded up on these companies during the, the pandemic. Um, Tanger was trading at about a fourth of what it is now. Everyone thought these companies were going to go bankrupt. If only someone had been saying they were not only going to survive but thrive. Oh, and this man. is going to like accelerate their adaptation to the new digital economy in a good way. And I mean, it it's I was grinning ear to ear when I was reading these earnings earnings reports. I got to tell you, both <laughs> were say, excellent. Wasn't, someone someone was out there beating the drum for these things. I can't remember his name. I know. I got. I'm going to do an update on the the retail is a dead basket because the numbers are. <laughs> They, they might give your war on cash basket a run for the money right now. Hey, now. Um, but, I, I mean, both of these were fantastic. Um, Tanger was the winner, in my opinion. Um, Simon's already had a really strong business. They they didn't even completely eliminate their dividend during the pandemic like all the other companies, including Tanger, did. Um, the big story, I'll start with Simon because that'll be a quick one. Um, occupancy is the big story with both of these. Simon's occupancy went from 91.8% in the second quarter. It increased by a full percentage point to 92.8% now. Even before the pandemic, retailers were losing losing tenants. Um, the retail bankruptcy started way before COVID ever hit. So for a retail REIT to be trending in that other direction is something investors have been waiting for for like five years now. Um, is, uh, net operating income from Simon's domestic properties is up 25% year over year. It, it's they're really getting past the pandemic. Even after acquiring their, one of their rivals, Taubman Centers, earlier this year, Simon has $8 billion of liquidity, including over a billion dollars of cash left to continue to innovate its properties. Um, so I'm very optimistic about that. They've raised their dividend the past few quarters in a row. Their dividend is now 27% higher than it was this time last year. Uh, they did a 10% sequential dividend increase after raising it in the third quarter already. Um, they raised their full year guidance. The numbers were just excellent. Tanger was another story altogether. They boosted their occupancy even better than Simon. Tanger's properties are 94.3% full. That's 150 basis points greater than Simon, which is the best small REIT in the, in the world. 
um, beating them in occupancy. Rent spreads were up 240 basis points, meaning they're tenant that when they're releasing these properties, they're getting more money now. Um, their tenant sales. Here's the key statistic for Tanger's earnings report. Tanger's tenant sales are at an all-time high on a square footage basis, 13% higher than pre-pandemic levels. That for a retail REIT, uh, you know, everyone said, "Oh, no one's going to go to outlets anymore. You can't social distance in outlet, outlet stores, and they're all crowded, and no one wants to do that." Uh, yes, they do. Yep. Uh, well, I and we've talked about this a lot. I mean, there are you see on the headlines with companies that are keeping their offices closed, but but you can look around there. There are more that are that are opening up. And you you look at the sporting world. I mean, any anywhere you look with these NFL games, college games, people are ready to get out and do stuff and travel. We're seeing it. I mean, I, I'm sure that you are seeing it there in Vegas. I mean, people are people are letting that guard down and starting to go back out, and and that certainly is reflecting in in the traffic that a lot of these stores are getting as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that per square foot sales number is at a record. So. That has big implications for the future of growth of the outlet industry. Tanger didn't want to open any more properties when occupancy was falling before the pandemic. Now that occupancy is rising and its tenants are happy, it has existing relationships with these tenants. So it could go to, say, The Gap, which is its biggest tenant, and say, your sales are killing it at all these properties you have stores at now. We're about to open a new one in Nashville, which is where they're planning their next one. Are you are you in? And now all their tenants are going to say, yes, it's, it's a great catalyst for growth in the industry, which the outlet industry is a very small part of retail. So I'm, I'm very excited for Tanger. It's, I guess it's about quadrupled since the pandemic lows, and I don't, I don't plan on selling any of it. Well, that's, that's good to hear on both fronts there. Uh, now, o- over the weekend, Matt, Berkshire Hathaway, as they do, uh, released their earnings report. And, you know, that's one that always just kind of flies right under the radar because it's it's sort of, it's off hours, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, there's not a whole heck of a lot really going on with Berkshire. I mean, not a whole lot has changed, but, but you took a look at this report real quick. What are one or two things you feel like investors need to know from this quarter for Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah, Berkshire always releases its earnings on a Saturday, which is by design. They want to give the market time to digest it before it reacts. Um, Berkshire's businesses are kind of boring, which is why nobody really pays that much attention to it. They want to know what Berkshire did in its stock portfolio, which is a different report. Um, Three key takeaways. Operating earnings were up 18% from Berkshire's operating businesses year over year, so nice recovery from the pandemic. Berkshire's cash stockpile is at an all-time high now. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it seems like we say that every quarter. Yeah, but it also, it, it, I mean, it, when when you feel like, I mean, Buffett before has really sort of talked about how cash just isn't where you want to be, right? And and now you see where his cash balance is. It's just sort of an in, interesting, interesting dissonance there. I oh think. no, don't, don't get me wrong. I think having a hundred forty nine billion dollars of cash is a negative yeah. in times of inflation, like we're starting to see right now. Yeah, it's a good that's point. that's losing five percent of its purchasing power a year right now. Yeah. Um, I, I wish he would do something with it. That's my biggest complaint about Berkshire right now. But he is buying back Berkshire's own shares at the highest rate so far. Uh, Berkshire spent $7.6 billion on buybacks in the quarter, a little over $20 billion so far this year. But the third quarter buyback pace was a little greater than the first and second. Um, and the cash stockpile still went up. So that tells you how much how much money Berkshire's businesses really generate. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see them spending money on buybacks. I I hope they continue to do that, um, especially if Buffett continues to think. And I don't necessarily disagree that acquisitions are expensive right now. 
um, I, I hope they. I hope he continues to pull the trigger on some buybacks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's he's buying stock. He just is. Uh, you it know, is. It's just his own. Yeah, exactly. You can't can't fault him for that. I mean, I feel like if anyone knows that business, uh, it's 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 Warren and Charlie. So uh, it seems seems like uh, much more the same here. And uh, Berkshire shareholders should should be. I, I would think at least. Uh, encouraged you know feeling feeling good about the uh, the big picture with this with this business uh matt let's wrap up this week with a conversation regarding something that happened early last week and and it's something that i think took a lot of us by surprise um last week zillow announced that it is getting out of the i buying business now if this seemed a bit out of nowhere, it, it kind of was, even given the recent headline that they were pressing pause on the initiative for the remainder of 2021. And Chris Hill and I had talked about this on Market Foolery uh, one day, and, and it, it felt like, well, you understand, they want to just kind of get their feet set underneath them and make sure they understand what they're doing. And, and the sign that this could be a bigger problem was if they kept that pause button held down for for a considerable part of 2022, right? If they kind of kept on stringing that along, then you start wondering, is this, do they really know what they're doing? And then lo and behold, they decide they're getting out of iBuying altogether, uh, which I, I, it sounded like they're getting out of it basically because it's just not working out to, to you know, how, how they thought it would. But I want to read what you tweeted, and let's go from there, <laughs> because, because you have some strong feelings about this. And, and, I, and I honestly, I think... I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but I'm going to read your tweet here. Your tweet, you said, The recent news from Zillow is the most disappointed I've ever been in a company I invested in. Terrible execution, poor shareholder communication, and a high level of incompetence. Planning to sell my shares very soon and walk away. I, I don't think you're the only one that feels this way, Matt, but but let's 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 dig into this a little bit. I mean, it, it's kind of astounding that it, this happened so quickly, particularly Rich Barton has been thinking about this eye buying program for a while, and now it sounds like it's gone. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm apparently not the only one who thinks this way because that was my most liked tweet of 2021 so far. <laughs> so I, apparently, I'm not the only one who feels that way. People don't really see my salty side very often, but I love it. It's a, it's a, an old Buffett quote that I tweeted right after that. Is you know, it, lose lose money and I'll be I'll be forgiving. If you lose reputation and I'll be ruthless. And that's I feel like they lost reputation here with me, and that's really the the, the problem. So I have a bunch of numbers to go through, but let me tell you why I'm disappointed. It's not just that they're getting out of iBuying. If Zillow's getting out of iBuying, if it, if it wasn't working out, if they weren't doing a good job, I'm fine pulling the plug on a, a money-losing business before things get really bad. That's fine. I even kind of agree with what they said. Um, they're, they're, the business, they're, it's not working out economically the way they thought it would. They said it's alienating a lot of their customers who are, are disappointed in the offers they're getting. You know, things to that effect. Fine. Whatever. I I... Don't like the misleading communication. Uh, number one, you mentioned that they just said they were taking a pause on iBuying, you know, like a week before this came out. Um, so that means one of two things. Either this was a knee-jerk reaction to one bad quarter, or they had already had the decision made when that, that news came out. One of those has to be true. It feels to me like the latter. It really does feel like they had that decision made. I can't believe they went from hitting pause to canceling altogether in in the stretch of like a week. It just doesn't it doesn't add up. Right. So it's either incompetence of management or a uh, you know or misleading communications. It's one or the other. Um, so on that note, I I 
I have you, you have to take a step back and decide what Zillow's core business is worth because they still have their premier agent business, which is profitable. Um, but my problem with that, Zillow gets 227 million unique viewers a month. They had 2.8 billion visits to their site in the in the third quarter. They have the biggest collection of real estate data in the world in terms of residential real estate. For them to take that, translate it to an iBuying business, and have worse economics than their rivals like Opendoor and Offerpad and Redfin, who have much better unit economics on the, on the houses they're buying and selling than Zillow, for them not to be able to leverage that data to their advantage, is that's the biggest red flag to me, is that they weren't able to take the key advantages they have. They've been developing this estimate for over a decade now. They're, they're the way to algorithmically price homes. For them not to be able to have that to the point where it does a better job than their rivals of pricing homes, that that is a big red flag to me. So um, am I, 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 I want to see what Zillow is going to do from here. They are unloading about nine. They have they ended the, ha- the quarter with 9,790 homes in inventory and another over 8,100 8, under contract to buy. That's a lot of houses. When they unload and sell all those, they're going to have roughly $5 billion of cash on their balance sheet. So I'm, I'm wondering what they're going to do with that. Um, what I'd like to see Zillow do is become kind of the kayak of iBuying, where they partner with Opendoor and Offerpad and Redfin. And you can go to Zillow and get, your, get offers on your house from all of them and decide which one's best for you. Zillow makes some money off that, doesn't take any of the risk. The other three get some lead generation, so it's a win-win for everybody. I'd like to see them do something like that. If Zillow's management's listening, please take that advice. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I buying was probably the big part of my thesis was with Zillow. Um, but it's really the way they went about it. I, I can, I never fault a company for walking away from a business that's not working if they do it the right way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think I tweeted something out to that extent too. I, I, it, it's easy to pile on, but I do at least. I mean, I respect. The decision. I mean, I, I respect them getting in there and saying, "Hey, you know what? This isn't working. Let's go ahead and bag it." It's it, 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 there's a good investing lesson there, right? I mean, if you get in an, you're in an investment and it's not working, if there's a thesis has changed or it's busted, I mean, being able to admit you're wrong and then moving forward, that's a that's a great quality to have. Um, I, I do want to ask you a couple things. So, number one, don't you get the feeling that real estate agents are just relishing this news? I mean, because this has traditionally been a very difficult market to disrupt, right? Real estate is just traditionally, it's been a very difficult market to disrupt. And it felt like Zillow was was helping blaze that trail, leading the way to doing that. I feel like real estate agents are looking at this and saying, yep, you know what? We told you it was harder than you thought, and they're feeling okay about it. Great. Well, I, I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm interviewing uh, EXP Realty, which is a, a brokerage business. I'm interviewing their CEO later today, and I'm, I can't wait to ask him about this news. Yeah. Because um, he's a, tradi- you know, he leads a traditional brokerage business that's growing rapidly. I, I can't imagine he's disappointed that Zillow's getting out of iBuying. No, I can't. And then the other thing, uh, because it feels like so much of this decision for Zillow to get into iBuying in the first place hinged on their proprietary data uh, and, and and certainly centered a lot around that Zestimate that you mentioned earlier they've been developing for the better part of a decade. It, it really feels like this is another strike against the Zestimate. I mean, they have to feel like the maybe the, the big picture view is that folks look at the Zestimate as really nothing more than cosmetic at this point and not 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 so informative, at least not not informative enough to where you're making 
decisions based around it. Yeah, and that's a good point. They're essentially saying the Zestimate is just for fun, um, is kind of what it sounds like to me. Um, if they're if you're saying you can't do a good job of predicting houses, I mean their unit economics went from positive twelve hundred basis points, so a twelve percent profit margin in the second quarter, to a negative five to seven percent profit margin in the fourth quarter. That's a pretty bad job of predicting, you know, what you're going to be able to do with these houses. Yeah. Um, if you're if and if you're saying that that volatility and your inability to predict houses are the reason you're pulling the plug, it really makes me think: What have you been doing with this estimate all this time? Because they they specifically said they wanted to get to the point where the Zestimate was the offer on the house, where yeah. someone could just click the Zestimate and that's the offer. So it's it's just a big big about face. They've been hyping this up as kind of the future of the company for a long time now. Well, it, it sounds like the Zestimate has become a bit more of a pestimate, Matt. <laughs> and I'm gonna go ahead and 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 leave the building now. <laughs> Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here, particularly as you're out of town there in Vegas uh, preparing for all these meetings. So good luck with everything on the trip there. Can't wait to hear all your takeaways. Uh, And, and hey, thanks again for being here. Awesome. Always fun to be here. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus or drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 